Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Today, uh, we are once again going high geek, deep nerd. Uh, But I I promise it's going to be interesting. Well, here's what I promise. It's going to be interesting to me. Um, What we're talking about is uh, something that for years, American meditation teachers have largely avoided discussing with their students, although they discuss it among themselves. Um, It's become something of a, a, a taboo subject. It's called the progress of insight. If you're a close listener, you will remember that we've talked about this a little bit with previous guests on the show. But today we're going deep. Uh, the progress of insight is another way of saying, and this is my translation, the stuff that will allegedly happen to you or that you will allegedly experience if you, don't, if you do a ton of a specific kind of meditation. And the culminating experience, and again, I'm going to use the word allegedly because I have not tasted any of this for myself, and uh, as a result of that, I, remain, um, I retain a healthy skepticism about all of this. But again, the culminating experience uh, is allegedly nirvana which is uh, a loaded term, but we'll, again, we'll get into it. So what, is, what does that even mean? What does any of this even mean? My guest today is Steve Armstrong, uh, a longtime meditation teacher and the managing editor of a new book uh, that's coming out soon. It's called The Manual of Insight. And I don't know how you're going to feel about this term, but it's a little bit of a cookbook for the progress of insight. Uh, we'll see how you feel about that term. You're, you, you should feel free to correct me in any <laughs> errors I make. Um, and the fact that this project even exists is a, is a bit revolutionary because, as I said, for decades, teachers really avoided uh, this subject. Um, so, Steve, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's an absolute yeah. pleasure. Uh, we're going to get into the book in a big way in a minute, but I want to start by just giving people a sense of who you are, how you got here. So how how did, how did you start meditating? Uh, well, the, the story I tell is after dropping out of law school, resorting to a commune, a commune to and this is in the re- 60s, recover, 70s. yeah, mid-60s, late 60s, to recover from uh, education. <laughs> uh, the, commune, the, the focus of the commune was we were all fans of the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd, partaking of the sacrament as often as we could. And this was our idea of a spiritual practice. Meaning, uh, Recreational. Uh, LSD? Among other things. I gotcha. Yeah. So that was our lifestyle. Where was this commune? Central Maine. Okay. Yeah. So you, gr- and you grew up Called in Maine. Called Summit Plantation. Summit Plantation was the yeah. name of it. Yeah. Does it still exist? Uh, it's an uninhabited territory in Central Maine. Yeah. Now it's uninhabited. And uh, this, you, but just by way of background, you grew up in Maine. You grew up in Lincoln, yeah, Maine, I, which is north of Bangor, which is where I started my TV career. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and you went to law school in Portland, Maine? Yeah. And I went then, to the university in Orono and then law school in Portland, Maine. Undergrad at the university in Orono and then, and then law school in, in, um, in Portland, University yeah. of Southern Maine? Uh, yeah, University of Southern Maine. First, and, first year only. First year early. So you hated it so much that you ran off to a commune. Yeah. And that's where you discovered meditation? No. I, uh, I met someone who found a book called Beginning to See by Sujata, had little one-liners about mindfulness, and uh, wrote to the address in the back for more information and found out that there was a retreat being taught in Bucksport, Maine, just an hour and a half from where we lived, uh, at that very time. The last two weeks of what it was the original first three-month course, 
uh, was open to beginners. So uh, in 1975, Jack, Joseph, Sharon, and another teacher uh, since deceased were offering the first three-month retreat in an old Catholic monastery in Bucksport, Maine, and we went to the last two weeks of it. Can I just interrupt for one second? Because I want to explain who Jack, Joseph, and Sharon are. Oh. Again, close listeners uh, will know that's Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and Joseph Goldstein, uh, the three sort of prototypical Jew boos who uh, <laughs> um, brought, um, really were pioneered, the, uh, they brought the practice of insight meditation, which is turned into secular mindfulness, uh, to these shores after having practiced over in Burma. Yeah. Um, India, and Burma, India. Burma, India, and um, Thailand. Uh, and Sharon has been on the show, and uh, uh, Jack and Joseph will certainly, I hope, be on the show in the future. Uh, so anyway, carry on. Yeah. So uh, we went to this, We on the appointed day, we drove to this uh, monastery, and uh, now there had been 50 people or so had been practicing meditation there in silence for two and a half months. So we walked in, and on one side is the dining room uh, with a notice saying new new arrivals will meet at 5 o'clock or something. And on the uh, right-hand side was the meditation hall, a chapel turned into a meditation hall. We looked at the schedule on the door of the chapel, and it says, you know, wake up 4 o'clock, do your yoga, sit, walk, have your breakfast, sit, walk, sit, walk, have your lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, have some tea, sit, walk, 7.30, talk till 8.30. And we looked at each other and said, well, at least we get an hour a day to talk. But what that meant was we really get an hour a day to listen. <laughs> so there we were. And uh, I, prior to that time, I had never met anybody that meditated. I didn't know anything about meditation. I didn't, I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I wasn't interested in spirituality. I, I didn't know anything about it. And it was excruciating, you know, to sit in that hall and to just kind of watch the body scream in agony and the mind just all over the place was uh, torturous. But one thing that happened that was noticeable and significant was when I heard the Dharma talks, the talks in the evening that was explaining the teachings of the Buddha and how it applied to our life and, uh, and how to practice, I felt like I'd always known what was being said Mm. And I always had lived that way or agreed with that, but I'd never heard it before. That's never actually read kind of the way I felt. Yeah. It's just like, this is so natural. Well, right? it's, been called, it's been called advanced common sense for a reason, <laughs> right? It's not... I guess so, yeah. And <laughs> that's how I started, you know, and uh, did the two weeks. And, you know, the immersion into the mind through mindfulness practice over the course of two weeks is so gradual that you don't really notice... I mean, you're you're dealing with the the day to day stuff, but you don't really notice that you're really getting quite deeply into the mind and out of your ordinary chatter. So that when we went back to the at the end of the retreat, went back to the to the uh, commune, everybody was the same. Everybody was doing the same thing, and everybody was there, and it was all familiar. But because our perspective on our inner life was so different. It's like, wow, we saw the commune from different, from a different place, from a different perspective. Who's the we, you and some we, friends? We and the woman who went to the retreat. You, okay, so me. you and your girlfriend at the time or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so did that cause you to drop out of the commune? We gradually uh, did more meditation practice and drifted away from the behaviors and the people and left the commune. Yeah. It took a few years, but gradually we did. And then what happened? 
Uh, we I, we ended up at the Insight Meditation Center as soon as it opened, or soon after it opened. Uh, that's that, the meditation that's, center that, in Massachusetts. Right. Yeah, that opened by Jack Joseph and Sharon. Opened by Jack Joseph and Sharon. They bought it uh, shortly after that retreat. They bought it in uh, February of '76, uh, and I showed up in '77 and stayed for eight years. Eight years. Uh, I was on staff, and I was doing retreats. And when I wasn't on staff, I did long retreat, and I was involved with the board of directors, and was there to kind of as a board member, was overseeing and participating in the creation of the Dharma Seed Tape Library, where all of the recordings of mindfulness retreats have been kept and made available online. So I, that, was my, that was my home. That was my um, focus in life. And then you went off and became a monk. Then I finally got, the, got my act together enough or got enough understanding or enough commitment to, yeah, to want to really understand what mindfulness practice was about. I think the first eight years was kind of repair work, emotional repair work, family of origin, healing, and stuff like that. And um, by by 75, uh, 85, I was, or 84 is when I made the decision to actually go to uh, Burma, and then I went in 85. And spent five <clears throat> years as a monk. Yeah, five years as a monk. So... Um, all right, that's a good background on okay. you, Mr. Armstrong. Let's <laughs> let's talk about this book, um, the Manual of Insight. It was actually written by a guy named Mahasi Sayadaw, and you were the managing editor of translating this. Who is Mahasi Sayadaw? Mahasi Sayadaw was a was a very well known, uh, both uh, scholar and practitioner in Burma in the last century. When um, when there was a convocation of the Buddhist of the world in Burma in 1956, 56, I think, he was like the second, second in the hierarchy of monks to attend. He was like number two. He was very knowledgeable, and he was responsible for uh, codifying and correcting the whole Pali Canon, which is the, the basic foundation of Theravada Buddhism. And Theravada Buddhism is kind of like the old school the Buddhism. The old school of right. Buddhism. And so he's very well studied. And when he went to do his own meditation practice, he got what instructions was available to him, practiced, but made some adaptations for himself in practice, which ended up proving quite successful for him. And when he tried it out on his relatives who wanted to know what he was doing and how he was doing it, he found that uh, lay people, householders like ourselves, could actually hear these meditation instructions and practice quite well in the course of a month or two. Whereas prior to that time, if you'd wanted to get that kind of instruction, you'd probably have to ordain as a monk or nun for life, and it would take years to get that level of instruction and that degree of instruction. So he made a very um, uh, lengthy study and practice very succinct and available, accessible to us, to uh, lay people. And, and basically, <clears throat> he, he, wrote, he wrote it all down, all, all the things that he experienced. And so I use this term cookbook. You gave me yeah. a little bit of a look. Um, what agree, about, disagree? What about an operator's manual? Okay, fine. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. I'll yeah. take that. It, it's, it is. It's, 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 here's, it's the how-to book. How to get enlightened. How to get enlightened. If you want to use that loaded term. 
But it is how to get enlightened. Um, and and traditional okay, so, Buddhist enlightenment, right? Yes. So m- traditional modern skeptic me, I hear that and I'm thinking, okay, that's got to be a load of crap. <laughs> yeah, I I can understand why, but why? Why is because wow, we have this pretty kind of outrageous kind of uninformed view of what and being enlightened is. I mean, what do you think enlightenment is? You know, we have all kinds of ideas that, well, we don't know because we're not enlightened, right? So we have all these ideas, and he kind of reduces it right down to moment-to-moment life unfolding can be free of suffering, free of entanglement. Moment-to-moment can be known as it really is, the nature of being a human being. And when one wakes up to that, very grounded, ordinary, this is the way it is for a human being, or other beings too, then we come out of delusion. We come out of illusion. We come out of the fantasies that we live in. We, we put aside our assumptions and beliefs that we've acquired through a family of origin, cultural conditioning, educational system, and all that, that are, well, excuse me, they're fantasies. They're ways of seeing that are... Um, not in alignment with our deepest experience of the way it is, the way reality is. So enlightenment, nirvana, liberation, purification of mind, all of these terms that get thrown around that are pretty grandiose um, and kind of interesting and mysterious at the same time. All of that you're saying is just a, these are fancy ways of talking about something very normal, which is meditation practice at at an advanced level shows you, allows you to see your actual life as it's unfolding right now, what you're experiencing, yeah. without the, uh, to use your term, entanglements, without the suffering, without clinging to things that you yeah. want and pushing away things you don't want and being numbed out to the rest. That, among other things, yes. But I think that what gets in our way is that we have these beliefs and assumptions about ourselves or the way things should be or what we expect or hope it to be, and when they aren't that way, we think, well, somebody's to blame, or, you know, it's wrong, not my thoughts are wrong or my assumptions are wrong. But we don't know, we often don't know what our assumptions and beliefs are. They're kind of uploaded uploaded into our tender little brains and minds when we're, you know, defenseless, you know, in our family of origin and schooling and things like that. And so we've got them, but they are... You know, some you know, kind of not not very skillful ways of dealing with. So, are you talking of life? Are you talking now about our resistance to enlightenment because because we're taught to think that that's fancy and foreign and weird, or are you talking now about the obstacles to achieving enlightenment because of the th- the latter? Both. Both. Yeah, because I think you know we have this we have a grandiose idea when when you hear the word enlightenment or whatever, we think well that's that's for people way back then or beings that are some kind of special, somehow different than me, and, you know, that keeps it at an arm's distance. I don't think either of those things. I think it's just a sort of unproven religious claim. Okay. Well, it's it's something out there. Yeah. But when you have an idea of it, it gets in the way of actually experiencing it. Yeah, well, when you, when you describe it the way you describe it, which and with the way it's described in this book, it actually becomes less highfalutin. It's just about actually waking up to what's happening right now. Yeah, right. Waking up to having the to feel, feeling, knowing this body and knowing this mind in into infinite and intimate detail. Yeah, as it occurs. All right, so let's dive into the um, 
owner's manual, operator's yeah. manual. Operator's <laughs> uh, never henceforth to be referred to as a cookbook. Um, uh, so how does it work? So if you do, b- b- this involves a high volume of meditation, right? So do you, do you have to be in retreat to experience these experiences uh, that lead up to nirvana? Uh, no, you don't have to be. But for most people, we need some guidance. And, you know, I always say that it's easier to learn to drive a car in an empty parking lot than on a freeway. So if you learn, if you get meditation instructions just on the way to work and you're hustle and bustle and hurry, you're not going to have much time to kind of settle in, get familiar with it, figure out the terrain of your own heart and mind and how it works. So you go on a retreat. You go on a retreat and you've got nothing to do except hear the instructions and try it. Hour after hour with some encouragement, some inspiration, some you get your questions answered and keep trying. And even over the course of a day, you can see, oh, yeah, something's happening. Over the course of a week or a longer retreat, as you know yourself, things happen. You know, you get a little, you get kind of removed from the chatter of your own mind and you get to experience things the way they are a little more intimately. What I find, fat, th- definitely things happen when you go on retreat, no, yeah. no yeah. question. Yeah. I, they, a yeah. lot of them are terrible. Um, <laughs> so but, did I. <laughs> but but um, what I find fascinating about the progress of insight, other than the fact that it's controversial, and we'll yeah. talk yeah, about yeah. why in yeah. a second, um, is that basically the, the proposition is that if you do enough meditation, certain mm. things will happen to you reliably mm. and predictably. Yes. And and that, what does that say? What does that say about the way the mind works? You will have a bunch of these experiences that, again, allegedly culminate in nirvana, which we will talk about. Yeah. That that I just and the people have been doing this for millennia. So yeah. there's there appears to be something here, and I find yeah. that very very interesting. Yeah. Um, but I've been. And again, I want to dive deeply into what these experiences and stages and insights are. But yeah. I've been meditating for, I don't know, almost seven years now. I've done plenty, uh, several retreats. I meditate a couple hours a day right yeah. now. I haven't had any of these experiences. So what does that tell you, that I'm a complete idiot or that one needs to do a high volume of meditation in, in order to experience these things? Well, you know, it took me eight years. So you you got another year to go, Dan. <laughs> Took you eight years before you uh, before tasted I, any of before, this stuff. Before, before, before I really, I mean, you know, the little, the little samadhi, the little concentration effects that you've had, I've had, you know, had, but before I really got to the practice where the the mind could do its thing, you know, uh, that was in my eighth eighth or ninth year, so and the, that was when I was more continuously in pra- in in retreat as a monk. Right, but so I'm not going on retreat as a monk. I have a baby. I mean, that's not going to happen. So, do I have any shot at experience? Any oh yeah, stuff? sure. You're building up your you're building up your potential all the time. Every, you know, your your daily your daily meditation, an hour a day, two hours a day, really is important. That's what keeps the thread of it going. And you know, it's like as you see, as you become familiar with how the mind works, and you see how the mind works. You know, it's not what you think about your life, it's what your life actually is that's important. And once you start looking at that and you start seeing how the mind works, then you can put aside some of the reactivity and some of the, some of the uh, recreational distractions that you indulge in and actually see the mind. Now, you know, there's many different spiritual traditions uh, that have existed on the face of the earth and still do. And they've discovered some, some elements of this, whether it's ecstasy or bliss or 
uh, oneness of mind, unification with the whole, uh, you know, great loving kindness, you know, whatever. There, there's just lots of different experiences that some people, some religions, claim as this is it. It. It is the big it. This is the end. This is the goal. This is the purpose of of life, of religious practice. And the Buddha practiced those those practices and discovered those conditions, those experiences, and he realized this is not the end. This is not the goal. This is a scenic turnout on the route. So as you practice and the mind is allowed to just do what it does best, which is to know things as they are, you know, ecstasy will come. Bliss, joy, joy, ecstasy, rapture, just pass out, you know, indulgent pleasure. These are all things that happen during the progress of insight. They happen at a certain stage in this progression of, of insight. And we call them the spiritual goodies. It's a spiritual goodie phase of practice where effortless energy and just soaring faith and uh, unshakable equanimity, um, things like that. All right. but, but, Very attractive. Yeah, no question. Yeah. But before we get too deep, let's yeah. just go step by step. So yeah. what's the first? So if I've done enough meditation yeah. and I start to enter this progressive insight, sure. right? Yeah. Um, what's the first thing I will experience? The first thing that you're going to know clearly is in every moment I'm experiencing something. Something's being known. You know, I'm feeling the body. I'm feeling, I'm watching, I'm hearing sounds. I'm seeing sights. And so there's this this knowledge called knowing of the nature of the mind and the body. Each of these stages has a pretty elaborate oh, name. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. it. I, I've yeah. said this before, yeah. but it's really something out of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but I love it. So, okay, yeah. the first what, what, the first knowledge is yeah. called the knowledge of... It's called of, nama, nama Rupa, but it means the knowledge of mind and body. Okay, so and this is the first... So basically, you know, you in the first... What's the term for the stage? The first stage? Uh, we'll call this the first knowledge. Okay, the first yeah. knowledge is you know that you have a mind and a body? Yeah, and you know that... In every moment, something is being known. This is basic awareness. Okay, so maybe I've hit this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For moments, but there's a lot of time. We're just we're just living life, and we don't we don't really pay attention to what we're doing. We're on automatic pilot. Yeah, most of our lives. Yeah. Well, that's when you come out of automatic pilot and you realize, oh, this is what I'm doing. This is what's happening to me. Oh, breathing in, breathing out, walking down the street. Oh, hearing sounds, getting excited, getting angry, feeling it, feeling bliss, whatever. So you're aware. Basically, the first. Uh, yeah. Knowledge on, in this in, uh, progress of insight is just ba- basically just waking up to the raw fact of existence. Yeah, that you're experiencing things, that that things are happening, and you are experiencing. That's uh, it. Experiencing them. That's okay, it. so what's yeah. stage number two? Uh, the, that that seems to appear because of your actions. You know, because I'm meditating. This is what's making it happen. But later, if you keep paying attention, you're going to realize that hey, things happen because of causes and conditions. They're not just they're not just happening randomly, you know. Uh, and the way we the way we train people to see this in retreats is we say when you sit down, just have the intention to sit still. You know, and inevitably you'll find yourself moving, scratching an itch, adjusting your posture, opening your eyes, swallowing, and doing all sorts of things, without having noticed that you had the intention to do it. Right. So, the body doesn't move unless there's an intention. So what we do is we start paying attention to intentions, and then we see that, hey, the body is dependent on the mind. The mind is dependent on the body. So this is the knowledge of conditionality. 
things aren't happening randomly, they're not accidental, whatever happens to you mentally, physically, is not accidental. So, okay, I might, so I might have experienced two of these there's, analogies. There's, okay, good. Now, this is how, you, evalu- this is how you, you evaluate your own practice. You know, someone talks about the progress of insight, and you can say, oh, yeah, I've had that experience. Or I might get to some place and you say, no, I haven't had that experience, and you realize, oh, Okay, I'm this far, That's but what not I'm that far. For next, right? Yeah. So, uh, what's the third knowledge? Well, the third knowledge is you begin to. Um, what's it called? First, I love the names. This this one is called uh, comprehension. The knowledge of comprehension. It's where you start to uh, recognize the qualities of your experience. Primarily, that things are changing all the time. <laughs> things are coming and going. You see that, no matter what it is that you experience, it doesn't last very long. So you begin to understand the characteristic of phenomena is that they're impermanent. Everything is impermanent. Okay, I've had this experience. Yeah, sure. Okay. But along with it comes this, uh, the, the second uh, characteristic or the second knowledge, which is the knowledge of dukkha. Now, suffering. Prob- suffering. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's both dukkha dukkha is suffering, obvious physical and mental suffering. But there's this other thing called viparinama dukkha, which is the dukkha of change. You know, you might have a good sitting for a while, and then it changes and it becomes painful. So the pleasure of the good sitting really isn't stable. So when you begin to see that things aren't stable, they even if they're even if you're ple- even if they're pleasant, they don't stay pleasant. So when they change, you know, then you're left with this uh, dukkha. So you so let me just l- jump in there for a second just yeah. for the yeah. for the uninitiated dukkha yeah. d u k k h a yes. is the pali pali being the language that the buddha spoke ancient yeah. indian language uh, it's the pali word often translated often mistranslated as suffering yes uh, the the buddha's uh, uh, principal pronouncement or most famous pronouncement was life is suffering, life is dukkha. But that really is a, a, a simplistic yes. way of understanding it. It really is that life is going to be satisfying, unsatisfying if you cling to things that will not last. Yes. Would be one way of yeah. saying it. Yeah. And so you said before, dukkha, dukkha is like that double dukkha is r- straight up raw suffering when yes. things suck. Yeah. But then there's the other kinds of suffering, which is you see that something that is right now good uh, eating a bowl of ice cream could make you sick later, and yeah. that is that is this suffering that is inherent in everything yeah. in life. Things don't things don't stay the same, you know, or change. We live with this insecurity. We live with this instability. You know, no matter how much you put into you know your relationship, your job, your finances, your house, your kids, your whatever, you know, no guarantee. Things are unstable, right? Things are insecure. So this we, is this is we what live you with see. a level of insecurity all the time, but we 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 mostly try to keep it out of sight. But in mindfulness practice, we turn and see it. We look at it like, wow, this is going on. This, this is going on all the time. Well, one of my one of my favorite uh, <laughs> Buddhist writers, Stephen Batchelor, talks about how Buddhism, commonly misunderstood in my view and in his view yeah. as a religion, actually yeah. is sort of a, a rejection of all these death-defying dogmas and, in fact, is a turning toward all of the stuff that's going to destroy you. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting... To me, that is really the heart of what's yeah. interesting about Buddhism or yeah. one of one of the yeah. areas that makes it so... So this is... the All the stuff that we're talking about with dukkha and suffering, this is what you understand in the third knowledge. Yep, you start to understand. There's okay. one more thing. 
the, so there's one, several part components to this third knowledge. Is that what you're getting at? Uh, yeah, there's three. There's three. There's three characteristics that we're going to begin to see: impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the third one I'm going to call conditionality. Conditionality means that things arise due to causes and conditions, and when you see that, you realize everything is made up of other things, and there's nothing that has an inherent existence within itself. Kind of heavy, heady, but what this means is things are, you know, our mind is kind of out of, con- out, out of control. We can train it, but we can't prevent certain thoughts or feelings from arising in the mind. They just come, don't they? Due to causes and conditions. We don't, we don't control all the conditions of our life, externally or internally. And so that kind of can be, coming to, this, coming to see this and to recognize this in our experience can be rather unsettling. First knowledge is knowledge of mind and body. Yes. Second knowledge is? Knowledge of conditionality. And third knowledge is? A knowledge of the three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and I'm going to call it conditionality, but... Sometimes referred to as selflessness. Yeah, selflessness. But that's a scary word. It's like selflessness. Well, who am I if I'm selfless? And Right. Know, so, But in like... selfless in this context doesn't mean generous. It means that the you that you think <laughs> exists doesn't exist. The yeah, little yeah. inner you, the, the little inner Dan. Steve, the, the, Dan, the, the right. Steve, it doesn't yeah. actually exist. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a conjunction of... Every moment is just a conjunction of conditions giving rise to an experience which we identify with as me. Yes, but if you break down life from the solid movie of experience to the 24 frames per second, you see that the little Dan is just a story you're making up every frame as opposed to actually what is happening in every frame is something is happening and somebody is knowing or and yeah. and and it, it is, is being, being known, known. Yeah. but the, the, there is nobody doing the knowing no that's right, right? so this is heady stuff so we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll maybe not we'll yeah. get into it a little bit deeper as, yeah. as we progress yeah. through yeah. the yeah. progress of insight so what is the fourth knowledge the fourth is a significant stage in practice it's uh called arising and passing away okay so i think i've had the first three yeah. And I've heard of the arising and passing away, sometimes referred to as the A and P. And this is the fireworks. Yeah. These are the this fireworks. Is where it's, this is where the fireworks come. But what happens is, at arising and passing away, is the speed with which you can notice the moment's experience start going by very rapidly. You just see, wow, stuff is just going by. And you're not stopping the flow of experience to kind of like have an emotional reaction to it or have a relationship, or have a cognitive story about it. It's just like the mind is just seeing things as they go by, moment to moment, very rapidly. And this is when the mind can, can do its work. The mind's work is to know, to know what is. And when, when all of our stories about ourselves and reactions to, I like it, I don't like it, uh, kind of are put aside, and that's what happens in the first three knowledges. We, we slowly begin to kind of put aside all our reactions, all our um, beliefs and assumptions, and we just see this is the way it is. Then the mind is able to do what it does, and it gets just really lit up. And then there are these phenomena called pseudo-nibbana. Pseudo-nirvana, or nibbana or, or, would be the Pali yeah, pronunciation. Yeah, of spiritual nirvana. goodies. We can call them spiritual goodies. Pseudo-nibbana meaning that people mistake the experiences they're getting in the A&P for nirvana. Yeah. Or nibbana. Yeah. Nirvana being Sanskrit, nibbana being Pali. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like what? Well, uh, ecstasy. You know, yeah, for, for example, there are times when, you know, the mind just gets lit up, and it is, 
it is just, it's not like the ecstasy of, oh boy, oh boy, this is so much fun. It's just like the whole mind and body is just in, well, orgasmic bliss. Just just like full body orgasm for hours. What's what's the bad part of this? <laughs> it's exhausting. It's exhausting. No, but in the meantime, but while you're experiencing that, and when it first arises, you say, wow, finally, I'm out of knee pain and I'm out of restless, wandering mind. It's just blissful. It's just joyful. It's like, wow, this is ecstasy. This is great. You know, we say, this has got to be it. This is this is So, so you think good. you're enlightened at this yeah. point. That's right. So you read uh, the chapter of my book about being on retreat. Yeah. Well, you were one of the teachers on uh, the was retreat. Right. Yes. Hey, you didn't name me on I that retreat. I didn't name you. Hey, I didn't on. name you because we didn't actually meet until no, today. That's um, all right. But the retreat was in 2010, and there's a there's a moment in that in that chapter where I describe having a pretty a very heightened experience for about 36 hours. Yeah. Is that A and P territory, or is that just like uh, a terrible beginning meditator has his first bout of clarity and um, and feels pretty good? Uh, you had a lot of samadhi, samadhi which is continu- continuity of yeah. mindfulness and purity of mind. Purity of mind brings opens the door to all these spiritual goodies. So you'd get some taste of you know tranquility and and joy and ease and clarity and a lot of confidence. You had a lot of confidence mm-hmm. during that bout, and these are all manifestations of some of the pseudo nibbanas or the spiritual goodies. But you don't think yeah. technically I was in the fourth knowledge there? I, you can't say you're kind of like. Go through a door and then you're there. It's more like it kind of it kind of as a cutting edge. We could say you step through the door, but you know you fall back into the third knowledge and you don't you don't stay in there all the time. So you're gradually learning how to access that fourth knowledge. Yeah, rising okay. and passing away. Don't so, don't take that as a confirmation of anything, but just as I as we're talking, it's why is it so like touchy that. to confirm? Because we're we're really the whole the whole process and the whole progress of insight is self knowledge. It's about self knowledge, and if 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 I can say to you, "Poof, Dan, you're enlightened," if you believe me because of your faith in me or your your wish to be enlightened or, or whatever, you can walk around full of BS for a long time before you realize, well, that's a delusion. So is this why? We're taking a bit of a detour here from yeah. the progress of insight, yeah. but that's fine. Yeah. Is this why Western meditation teachers have been so reluctant to talk about this stuff explicitly? I, I, uh, partly, but I think it's more that most of us who started practice in the early years, very uh, in, driven in some ways, either spiritually called or karmically called, and just really, uh, you know, on the on the on the on the fast track. To get to our spiritual our spiritual life, and when we we when we say when we were told here's the map, check it out, you know some people just get really strive over overbearing uh, obsessive and strive too hard or with too much effort, which actually impedes their evolution and I should say of of the knowledges. Right. So the weird thing about this map is trying too hard. You can't make any progress. No, that's right. So you have to that's put yourself right. in this weird kind of neutral position of trying without trying. Well, it's like you know, if you went, if if you said, "Hey, I've heard of this town called Paris. Uh, I'm going to go find it." You could wander a long time before you'd ever hit Paris. So it's good to have a map. Here's the map of where Paris is. Boom. Okay, so you can wander around till you find what looks like Paris, and then you say, "I need a map of the streets of Paris." So you get a map from someone who's into famous authors that lived in Paris. 
and you follow those that map to all these locations that famous authors lived, well, you might be obsessed with getting you know your checklist done, but in the meantime, you're seeing the rest of Paris. And missing it. A lot of it. Because you're, you've got to focus on that, and you're missing what goes by elsewhere. So same thing with, the, with having the map of a spiritual journey. You know, if you've got a map and you're obsessively just trying to get it, that's, well, that's just the wrong attitude to begin with in the first place. Did you go through some of that? Yeah, of course. You know, when I, when I first started meditation practice, I thought it was to have drug-like experiences. That, I mean, you know, I thought, you know, you get high. You know, that's good. You know, so that, that seemed like the, the goal <laughs> when I first shared that, that mistaken belief with Saito Upandita the first time I was practicing with him. Saito Upandita was Mahasi Saito's successor, successor in yeah. Burma and with whom you practiced. Yeah. He recently died. Yeah. And uh, when I, you know, he said something about, well, well what, what do you think happens? And I said, well, you know, you have these kind of experiences. You just be mindful and you have some drug-like experiences and then, you know, puff, you get enlightened. He just burst out laughing. He just kind of burst out laughing. And it, I mean, I wasn't offended. It was just, I was naive. And so he, he spends a lot of time instructing, uh, offering the teachings of what the path is, at least the beginning path, how to get onto the path, you know, so that you're not, you're not wasting your time looking for, you know, uh, pseudo-nibbana. It'll come. It'll come. Anybody that practices is going to definitely experience pseudo-nibbana. But it's pseudo. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So, but, but just to get back to why you and your ilk, you and the other meditation teachers have been so sort of hush-hush about this. There's a lot of weirdness around this progress of insight. You're one of the first... Uh, teachers who, uh, who I've been able to sit here and just talk about this, you know, and talk about the names. And then, uh, but even you got a little, you were like, don't take me as confirming anything. So, and, 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 and we'll have him on the show at some point, but there's a guy named Daniel Ingram who you and I were discussing before, uh, before, um, uh, we st- started the podcast. Who wrote a book? He's a, a Western guy. He's an ER doctor down in Alabama, and he wrote a book about how he be- how he became how he w- sort of went all the way on the progress of insight. That yeah. book was very much a cookbook, yeah. a term that he's okay with, yeah. um, and that caused an enormous amount of controversy within the tiny world of American Buddhism. Yeah. And 
so so the but the the reason why that's controversial well, there's there are about seven thousand reasons why it's controversial, <laughs> but one of them is that if people know too much American teachers yourself included have had a lot of hard experience personally and with their students of seeing people get obsessed with making progress, which of course impedes progress yeah, right sure and that that was the danger you know you you'll you'll know too much, and we're very heady we're we're great thinkers, we westerners are great thinkers, and we don't have a lot of faith for practice, you know so you know, if you can think yourself into a kind of a blissful state or kind of like into believing that you're enlightened, great, good. Don't have to do the work. So, excuse me, that's that's kind of the cynical view. But, um, you know, yeah, cynicism I was, is fine here, just so uh, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, a safe yeah right. Zone for I cynicism. know. We're in, a, we're in the same club. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, I think that, that, you know, the introduction of uh, a lot of what came in with, with the teaching of mindfulness and insight in the West. Um, Primarily, the Western psychological uh, understandings that that help a lot of us kind of get through the first years of of practice and kind of become normal, and then suitable for for really intensive practice of insight. Uh, I think has been a, a great blessing, and to have gotten a kind of this uh, the fast track to enlightenment early on could have derailed uh, me and others. I mean, I you know I heard about it a little bit, but didn't pay much attention to it because I wasn't <laughs> it didn't seem real to me, frankly. And um, it wasn't until I got to Burma that oh, it became apparent that this is what's happening. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so we're yeah. we're at the fourth knowledge yeah. here: the yeah. arising and passing away, which yeah. is where you see very clearly that everything is arising, arising and passing away. away. Uh, yeah. And that can feel really good, and yeah. you can have these pseudo nibbana or pseudo nirvana experiences. Yeah. yeah. Fifth knowledge. Now let me just let me just say about pseudo nibbana. Yeah, uh, because we think this is it, we get attached to it. We take delight in it. We take delight in bliss. We take delight in joy. We take delight in clarity. We take delight in strong faith. We take delight in uh, effortless energy. We take delight in non-reactive equanimity, and we just we just feed a sense of self. So until we until we can see those experiences as just ecstasy being known, bliss. Being known, great faith, being known, clarity, piercing clarity, just being known. So what? You know, until we can have that level of equanimity towards those um, spiritual goodies, we don't progress beyond rising and passing away. So it's a, it's a big, it's a big step. I could see worse things than being stuck in a state of ecstasy. That feels like a pretty good cul-de-sac to me. Well, well it's a turnout on it's a scenic turnout on the route, Dan. You know, there's as 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 Upandita would say, there's better things ahead. Oh, but but <laughs> before you get to those better things, you got to go through some tough things. So let's go. Let's progress okay. through the All other right. knowledge. The, the next, the next, uh, the next, because uh, mature arising and passing away, where the the spiritual goodies are arising, but you're not indulging in them. That's great. You know that the path is just noticed. Uh, is like the best practice you've ever could imagine. It's just like it's so effortless and it's so clear and it's so continuous and it's so at times blissful and it's what, and you're not indulging in it and you don't care if it comes or goes and it's just very easy, a lot of equanimity. It's really great. And so the next uh, phase of practice uh, is where I guess we'd have to say we purify our understanding of dukkha. What's the name of this? It's oh. called uh, well, it's called Banganyana, but it, we it's the it's the opening to the Dukkanyanas, what are called the knowledge of dukkha, suffering. Yeah, suffering, and this is one of those. Uh, uh, I didn't mention it before, but this is the second what we call a rolling up the mat 
stage of practice. This is where practice is so hard. I mean, people freak out and roll so up their painful. mat and leave. Uh, yeah, we just want to roll up our mat and go home. So this is this comes immediately after the awesome, uh, yeah, the awesome stuff ex- of A and P. Yeah, right. So, and again, the name of this knowledge is uh, it's Banganyana, the knowledge of dissolution, dis dissolution. So every so sometimes this area dissolving. Is, sometimes this knowledge is called the dark night. Well, you know, I I don't I yes. People don't like this. Some people don't like this. People term. don't like this. Some of it say it's the dark night of the soul, similar to the dark night of the soul. I don't know what the dark night of the soul is, but some of the, there's some of the similar characteristics. But I'll also make a distinction if you want me to. But uh, when when you when you begin to open to the fact that everything is rising and passing away, and everything is unsatisfactory, changing, and it's out of control, um, suddenly or gradually you begin to recognize. Up until this point, I have to use three-dimensional, you know, objects are arising and they're being known. Another object arises and it's being known. Object arises and it's being known and it's very fast. But all along up to this point, the knowing has seemed to be steady, stable, like it doesn't arise and pass away. But at mature arising and passing away, you start to notice that the knowing itself is not steady. So the Dan that's knowing... It's yeah. actually not there. Yeah, right. It's like the object and the knowing arise at the same time, and they both pass away at the same time. And they arise again, an object, and another knowing, and it passes away. So that's an dissolution. And another. Yeah, because the, the sense of a permanent, enduring knower of changing objects dissolves. And this is scary as hell for a lot of people. This is very scary. Yeah, it's unsettling. Uh, because uh, it, it's very, you, you can't keep track of one moment to the next. The you that was mo- mindful a moment ago isn't here to be mindful this time. So let me And you really you. feel it. It's visceral. It's like you feel that. It's like, you know, where am I? Let me tell you about an experience I had um, when yeah. I was young, a younger guy, much younger guy. Who, Were you ever not younger? I'm, 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 uh, <laughs> we'll be 45 this summer, so I'm, I'm not so super young. Yeah, um, okay. So when I was very young, yeah. I had a recurring panic attack when I would smoke weed. And the, pan- and the contents of this panic attack were uh, that every, like, it was like my brain was turning over in my head. Everything that was happening was, uh, was happening right now. Oh, no, this is happening right now. No, no, now it's now. Yeah. No, now it's now. And it was terrifying. It felt like air. I was waking up and, and then and dying and waking up in every moment. And I... I know a little bit about the progress of insight and in this stage, which is sometimes called the dark night or the yeah. knowledge of fear or whatever. Yeah. I sometimes think that maybe I was having an experience like this as an immature weed smoker. It does sound like you access that understanding, that knowledge. But the, the difference between doing drugs or having a, a mental illness where one would access that kind of stuff is that you can't integrate it. You can't integrate that knowledge in a, into a, an understanding that you can live with. No, I didn't integrate no. it at all. No, it was like no. a vampire being confronted with garlic. I was yeah, just yeah. repulsed by yeah. it and freaked out <laughs> instead of just sort of leaning into it and seeing it with some equanimity. Yeah, right. And that's what happens. We get we get afraid, and we have to work through the fear of you know, objects and dissolution. And then there's uh, another phase of this uh, dark night. There's both the fear, and then there's uh, what we would call disillusionment, where you start to see that all that has appeared and that we've been fascinated by in our life is, is just really not very, it doesn't really offer the goods. It's, we, get, we get disillusioned with more experience. Nothing does it for you. Nothing does it for you.
So this is another knowledge, another skill. Yeah, it's scary because to to think nothing does it for you and there's no you that it's going to be done for anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like, what's it all about? You can really fall into a like uh, kind of deep confusion and nihilism and just uh, you know like you disappear and you don't. It, it's 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 scary. So this progress of insight is a real adventure. That's it is another thing I like about it. It's oh, yeah. there are you, great things that happen, and then these all these obstacles you have to navigate. It's back to my sort of Dungeons and Dragons um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, comparison. Okay, so yeah, we, yeah. We've, I don't know which knowledge we're in anymore, but we've okay. gone from fear into disillusionment, and then what happens ap- after that? Okay, so now you're 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 getting familiar with when. Well, let me just say when people get into that stage, we recognize that this is you know this is the disillusion, this is the banganyanas, this is the knowledge of dukkha. Uh, the Dukanyanas, and people want to go home, and so we we have to just say, okay, just settle back, just kind of notice what you can. Don't go, don't look for the kind of experience you had last week. That that's going backwards. Just keep noticing what you can. Just settle back, be comfortable. Don't don't push. Don't no expectations. And, and eventually, people will get through it. Their 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 pace of noticing gets even faster. But there's a knowledge. There's something that has to transpire in the mind, and that is as bad as this is. You know, I got here through the knowing that I just had to recognize something is being known in each moment. Something is being known in each moment. This now is being known in each moment. Disillusionment is being known in each moment. You know, fear is just being known in each moment. You know, terror is just being known in this moment. Okay. And when you, when you really remember that and you, you kind of recommit, this is the next, this is the next uh, level of... Uh, insight, which is called reobservation. You kind of redetermine. You you determine. You know the way forward is to just keep noticing things are being known one after another. This is called reobservation. Reobservation. That's the name of this. That's stage. the name of this stage. Yeah. Okay. Because you 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 reaffirm again. You're just observing. You're not judging this as. I mean, if we were judging our experience as good or bad and saying this is this is skillful or not, you would go home. You 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 would not practice. You wouldn't know how to practice. You'd get. You'd need a teacher. You need a teacher, a skillful teacher at the Dukanyanas to help you navigate it skillfully. If you don't have a skillful teacher, or you don't have a teacher that you can have faith in, to trust, to guide you, uh, you'll end up um, really uh, disturbed. And again, the dukkha and yanas are the knowledges of suffering that happen after the fireworks of the arising and passing yeah. away. So that's like right. sort of the, the valley one has to— uh, Yeah, the uh, valley of death. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> but literally because you're seeing um, uh, everything dies. So, okay, so we're in reobservation. We're starting to emerge out of the valley of yeah. death. Yeah. Uh, and what's the next—what happens What's the next stage? Uh, there may be a—I a, 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 I haven't got it quite uh, in my mind right now, but you're on your way towards more equanimity. And that is the stage, equanimity. This, this is the stage that we're, we're headed towards. And gradually, we haven't seen it because we've been so fascinated with the, the variety of objects that we've been noticing. We've been f- so fascinated with the spiritual goodies. And then we've been so obsessed with the, or preoccupied with the dukanyanas. We haven't noticed that the stability of the mind to be with these changing objects has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger to now where it's just so equanimous Anything can arise, and we don't react. Anything can arise, and we don't react. The best possible, you know, spiritual goodies can arise. No indulgence in them. The worst terrifying, fearful dukkha that you can imagine arises. No fear of that. Equanimity. Unshakable, steady observation. This is the way it is, moment to moment.
So you've had this. Okay, so here we are. We're we're about to get to the sort of culminating experience in this adventure. So you <laughs> start out with some basic understanding of the way the mind works mm-hmm. and during the progress of insight, and then you hit the mind is steadied and concentrated and on, and seeing things clearly, mm-hmm. and you hit these. Uh, the fireworks of the arising and passing away, sometimes not called s- pseudo-nirvana, or sometimes, I love this term, corruptions of insight. Now, let, me just, let me just explain what that means. Okay. The, 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 the spiritual goodies arise because you have good practice. But as soon as they arise, they become an object of indulgence or feeling gratified. It's that gratification with those experiences that is the corruption. Joy is not a corruption. Tranquility is not a corruption. Faith is not a corruption. Clinging Clarity. to them is the corruption. Indulging right. and clinging to them. That's, so, the, that's the corruption. So we started with the basic understanding of the mind and the body and, and conditionality, and then we enter into this, uh, a, this uh, a and P where we have the pseudo-nirvana. Mm-hmm. Then things get scary. We're in the, uh, the so-called dukkha jnanas, the, the dark night, the, the valley of death, whatever. <laughs> There's a bunch of stages of this. And then you start to emerge with reobservation where you fall back onto the, the, the real anchor, which is that mindfulness, which yeah. is just cl- seeing things clearly. Yeah. And then you get to this really cool area called that. And again, I've had no experience with any of this. This is just my understanding from talking <laughs> to you and reading. You have equanimity, which is like everything's cool. You're just cool yeah. with everything. Yeah. And out of equanimity... This is where we get to the the big N word here. Okay, now let me let me just let yes. me just prep you a little bit. Okay. Okay. When we have when the mind is in this equanimous, it's not a state. It's like moment to moment. It's just not reacting. It's just there. It's there. It's there. Things start. Things are going by extremely rapidly, and the the even the sensations of the body are going by so fast. You don't you don't stop the flow of experience at all, and it just feel you know when I, for myself. Uh, when when there was strong equanimity, it just the 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 tangibility of the body feels like mist, mist. <laughs> That's as heavy and as thick as the body is. It's like mist, okay. And so the mind is very light too. It just not. It just doesn't get entangled in anything. It doesn't miss anything either. It just doesn't get entangled. It doesn't pick up. It often doesn't even pick up the ideas of what's being presented to it. It sees, but it's not, not picking it up to massage it into, I like it, I don't, I should do this, I shouldn't do that. The mind doesn't do that. And so the, the equanimity tends towards long, long periods of time of just sitting quietly, observing the flow of phenomena. Time gets distorted. You sit down, you seem to take two or three breaths, and a couple of hours has gone by. Mm. You have some real time distortions that are phenomenal. Okay, now what's happening is the objects are being seen quickly and recognized quickly and when they have no reaction to them. But what's being seen about them is one of the three characteristics. We're seeing that they're impermanent. We're seeing that they have the characteristic of dukkha, which means they're either painful themselves, not at this point, uh, they're unstable, or they're not controllable. Unreliable. Unreliable. And then that the third characteristic is they're conditioned and they're not, not self. They're, they're not stable. You, you can't control them. Okay, so we're seeing uh, objects. We're seeing the, these characteristics of all objects. And so think of it this way, Dan. Imagine that you were seeing, you understood, everything that you're experiencing is painful. You, <laughs> you wouldn't pick it up. You, would, you wouldn't deal with it. You, wouldn't, you just, no, nah, I don't want to deal with that. Or if you realize this that I'm looking for to, to make my life 10% happier is unstable. It doesn't last. 
I might be 10% happier today, but it's going to be 10% less happy tomorrow. Why, why do that? So you don't pick it up. The mind doesn't reach for what it sees, doesn't offer what it looks for. So the mind is not reaching for to hold on to anything because it's impermanent. It doesn't last. It has the characteristic of a dukkha. It's not controllable. It's not yours. It's, it has no essence even. And so the mind doesn't reach. Now, when the mind doesn't reach for anything, it might fall into the unconditioned. Okay, so now the unconditioned is another way of saying nirvana or in the Pali uh, word, nibbana. Mm-hmm. Unpack that for me, man. What is the <laughs> unconditioned and how would one fall into it? Well, you know, as Trungpa Rinpoche so aptly put it, he says, you know, um, uh, enlightenment is an accident. Practice makes us accident-prone. Right? Okay, so it's like you can't make—it's unconditioned. It's not conditioned by anything. It's a reality. So we live in this world as this vast soup of causes and conditions, but nirvana is the unconditioned. It is this— Yeah, it's its own reality. And when you fall into it, do you spend a lot of time there, or is it like a zap and and and, and you bolt out of your chair? What is what happens? <laughs> well, uh, the texts say uh, it's just a momentary uh, visit by the mind to this reality, and some people recognize it instantly, and some don't. But if you continue to practice and develop what's called the fruition, not just the the initial. Uh, path of nibbana, but the fruition of it, then it can last for a longer period of time. What do you, what's the difference between the path and the fruition? So uh, this this first visit to the to the unconditioned um, is a profound experience, and it uh, permanently transforms the mind. Okay, and some people experience it, and it's just like, wow, they're just done. They're just done. They, they, they don't need to practice. They don't want to practice anymore. They, they, they just have done all they want to do. Some people just ride a um, ride the wave of bliss and kind of dharma joy for hours, if not days. Just kind of like, wow, relief. So it's a kind of relief that's just like unbelievable. Okay? So what happens is that all along in our practice up to this first taste of the unconditioned is we've been purifying the mind, purifying our understanding, and we're becoming more confident that this is the path to the end of uh, suffering, clinging, the end of clinging, at least suffering. And that um, at some point we have uh, kind of looked at all of our doubts, looked at all of our, um, is it possible really, is it me, you know, does it work for them? Does it work for me? Can I do it? Da, da, da. All that stuff has been seen. It's just another moment's experience arising and passing away. And it is said that at the point of first accessing the unconditioned, that doubt about the teachings of the path, the Dharma, and the, the ability to practice in this way is uprooted, meaning it's not just suppressed through concentration. It's uprooted from the mind, never to appear again. But also, it is said that this belief in this, uh, the little Dan or the little Steve that's in here that this is all happening to, that that belief is also uprooted 
from the mind at the uh, access to first uh, first access to the unconditioned. But what is it? But what what is it, you've had this experience clearly. So what does it feel like? What is it like? Not supposed to say. Why are you supposed to say? <laughs> this is where things get weird. Why are you not supposed to say? It's not. It's not that we're not supposed to say. Uh, it's in the book. It's 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 a non-experience, if you will. You could have to say it's a non-experience. So if it, what's so great about it if it's a non-experience? Because it has this powerful effect on the mind. But what's so great about it in the moment you're having the experience if there's nothing to experience? That's that's the greatness of it. Because at this point, you, you, you have seen that every moment, every moment's experience has this qu- characteristic of dukkha. Suffering, right. Okay. N- nothing's going to do it for you. And so now you have, now there is this experience of no dukkha. Uh, I see. I see. So no it's dukkha. like a weight has been lifted or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. it's like nothing's going to do it for you until everything does it for you? No, I wouldn't say everything does it for you. I think you still, you still realize that nothing is going to do it for you like you had thought before. But now your sense of your understanding of what happiness is is forever changed. So switch seats with me mentally here. If you were in my chair and you just listened to somebody describe this adventure that culminates in a non-experience that permanently changes the mind, would you believe any of this? No. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. I would be skeptical. I would say, yeah, but so why? 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 Why would I want to do that? And, And, you know, can you prove it? You know, and, and tell me about it and, you know, something. Show it to me. You know, can't do that. But the, the experience of, uh, of, of it is real. You know, and and once, you're just saying that based on your own experience. Once you, taste, once you taste the experience of the unconditioned, you know what it is. Okay? But this, there's a lot of controversy around this because yeah. we're, talking about a, we're talking about the understanding of enlightenment from one school of Buddhism. Yeah, and there are many right. schools of Buddhism. Yeah, that's right. And so if you sit with a Tibetan monk and talk to them about the unconditioned, oh, yeah. they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Kind oh, of yeah. Like, oh, sure. Oh, in fact, one of my one of my colleagues, who does practice with Tibetan teacher, described this kind of experience to his Tibetan teacher, and his Tibetan teacher didn't, you know, didn't. There's nothing in Tibetan Buddhism that that would value that. Okay, well, you know, it's just different. You know, probably a, a great Zen master from Japan and a Chan master from China and a, you know, a Tibetan master from Tibet and a. Ajahn from Thailand and a Sayadaw from Burma, if they all got together and talked about their, you know, most uh, liberating experiences, wouldn't be able to understand each other. But that doesn't mean it doesn't actually work. You know, there's some, some cultural stuff there, and there's some how you how you frame the experience. You know, but when you when you when you when you take the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths, that you know, there is this experience of suffering, and once you come to know suffering. Really, what what's what what the suffering is that he's pointing to? Then you begin to understand, or begin to get an idea of what the end of suffering is going to look like. And when you taste that end of suffering, then you confirm for yourself, oh, that's it, that's it. So, Phew. so <laughs> the the you 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 have all of these uh, different schools, uh, mm-hmm. and and they have differing. Maps of enlightenment, sure. right? Everybody's yeah. so we talked about. We just talked about one map, but yeah. there are other maps. Yeah. Do you ever have a student who starts 
studying under you and start showing landmarks on other people's maps and other <laughs> traditions maps? Well, I don't know many, I don't know the too many details of other maps, but I do know that when other students students from other traditions come to me and they talk about their experiences, I can locate them on the, on my map. I see. I see. So I can say, "Oh, well, that sounds like yeah. This is what we would. This is how I would understand it from from my perspective, from my map." Uh, and you know, having having talked with a lot of uh, students who practice Tibetan teachings, there's a lot of overlap. But there are places where you know it goes dissonant and kind of fuzzy, and you, you can't kind of overlap. You can't lay them over as a direct fit. There so was there was uh, an effort here in the West to to form something called the. Con- Contemplative development mapping projects, <laughs> where they would sort of lay yeah. the maps over each other and see yeah. if they could f- yeah. see what the common yeah. goalposts are. Yeah. But 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 we we so we we finished the progress of insight or one part of the progress of insight yeah. with the Nirvana experience. But the fact is uh, that actually this is just the beginning. It's called stream entry. You yeah. enter the stream, yeah. and then you actually go through this progress sec- again. Uh, Yes, and then the second time you have a Nirvana experience, it's. Co- I, I, let me just correct. Let Sorry. me just correct. It's not the second time you experience Nirvana I see. because I mem- remember I mentioned the path. path. Yes. The path is the first moment of experiencing yes. or the realizing Nirvana, but then with training you can develop the capacity to enter this uh, state or enter. We'll call it a state. The state or this reality of Nirvana or Nibbana for extended periods of time. But this is a train, a special training of the mind. So you might stay in this uh, experience, realization of nibbana, for a minute or two or five, an hour more. Okay, so that's those are fruition. Moments. Yeah, those are fruition. That's not second path. No, that's not. That's the not second. the second experience. No. Right. Okay. No. So, so we ex- can experience or kind of realize nib- nib- nibbana. Uh, many times before one moves on to second path, and then the second path. And I don't want to get too deeply into yeah. this because we have a lot of we don't have right. that much time left. But yeah. second path, you you are at this point a once returner, and then the <clears throat> third path moment is a non-returner, and the fourth is an arhant, which is a fully enlightened being. Yeah. Um, What's that all mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> well I want to ask you. So, c- can you even say? Or are you allowed to say where you are in this progress, and why can't you if you can't? Uh, this this whole lineage comes from the monastic tradition, and the rules of the monks were not to. Uh, they weren't prohibited from sharing their personal realizations and, and attainments, but if if in the process they deceptively led others to believe their attainments, it could damage others' faith, and so. Monks were very cautious and, and just don't talk about their attainments. So you're not allowed to say. No, I, I, nobody's nobody's preventing me from saying anything. But you don't feel comfortable saying I'm a once returner, no. I'm a non-returner, or whatever. No. no. But don't you see how that's a little like there's like yeah, this code weird, of silence, weird. like mafia thing. Like you can't <laughs> tell me where you are on this map. Why not? <laughs> I'm still on the map. I'm still I asked trudging Joseph, along. I asked you. We have we, Joseph Goldstein, who was referenced yeah. before, who's my teacher yeah. And, yeah. and has been the teacher for you for many years. I yeah. once asked him, "Where are you?" and he said something like, "I'm somewhere between the first and the third, uh, oh. or something along those lines." But okay. basically, people people feel that there there is this omerta. You you just really are not <laughs> supposed to say what where exactly you are on the map. Mm. Um, yeah. That that's you know I I I respect Joseph's you know uh, uh, hedging 
<laughs> if you will, and, and kind of clarity with without specificity. Uh, I think that's I think that's probably as skillful as we can get. Do you guys you know? are you are you comfortable talking about this with your teacher or among other teachers? Or are there like oh, yeah. backroom conversations where you guys well, sort of yeah. <laughs> figure out where you are? Uh, something like that. You know, when I first started teaching the three month course with Joseph Sharon and a couple of other senior teachers, we did take one year uh, of uh, teacher meetings during the three month course where we all spoke about our. Uh, what we considered our best, clearest, most liberating, whatever experiences, both practicing concentration or jhana, as well as practicing insight or liberation. And it was really, what was really, really instructive to me, Dan, was that we've all practiced, we were all practicing in the same tradition, the Mahasim Sayadaw tradition, and we all had very distinctively different experiences, but we all had a similar understanding. So, but was that like a kind of like of a measuring uh, public, you know, measuring of of where we are on the on the path? Well, kind we of thing? we were just it was it was just very uh, we were sharing with each other what our what our. But I get don't you get into comparing mine? Oh, look, Joseph's so much farther huh. ahead of me. That's for people who haven't got to the first stage. Uh, first. <laughs> I see. You can't understand this conversation. In, in, comparing mind is one of those. Those grabbing things, you know, conceit, you know, I see. comparing mind. So by the time you get the first stage, you've done a lot of you've done, you've uprooted a lot of that com- comparing mind. Okay, so I have two. It's qu- still, it I, still hangs in there till the end, but gotcha. Yeah. So, but that actually leads to my next question. I have two yeah. final questions I want to ask you. Yeah, uh, yeah. One is, you've gone. You won't tell, say how far, but you've gone somewhere, uh, some pretty far on the progress of insight. I would imagine. <laughs> Are you? Do you retain the capacity to be a jerk ever? Oh, I practice that daily. How, how, if you've gone through this adventure many times and you've experienced nirvana, how can you still be a jerk sometimes? Uh, jerkism is, 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 uh, is a, an evaluation usually from other people's eyes. No, I know when I'm being a jerk. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's being human. I think of it as being human. And, and in some ways, we become more human. Maybe not careless in being a jerk, but there are times we just, we still have our conditioning. We still have a lot of uh, personal, family, cultural conditioning, which just comes out in, you know, being carelessly saying things, doing things that, well, are come from, coming from a place of delusion. We're still, we're not, we're not free of delusion. So you're not fully enlightened yet? No, we still have a lot of aversion, still have desire, still have conceit and pride and and these things come out in ways that harm others or hurt others or shock others or shock ourselves even. And so, yeah, we, it's, uh, you know, none of us like to think of ourselves as a jerk all the time, but we do. We all have some, you know, relapses, I'd say, from our most uh, mindful and um, ethical and uh, uh, wise place that we visited. So uh, here's my final question. So I, I've been playing the skeptic, but the fact of the matter is, while I am actually genuinely a skeptic, I'm I'm really curious and want to experience some of this stuff for myself. And but yeah. I, is that really possible given the reality of my life? I have a crazy full time job. I've started a company. I write books. I'm I have a baby. Um, uh, I will be able to do a, a retreat a year and a couple hours a day of sitting, which is pretty good. Yes, but. You took you eight years. You had to become a monk before you started really getting down the path. So that makes me feel a little dispirited. No, don't. I'll tell you why. Because the the uh, all that you're doing, the practice that you're doing, 
the retreats that you do, even if it's once a year, the uh, daily practice, and the uh, keeping yourself informed, talking about Dharma with other people is inspiring. It keeps your mind headed in that direction a lot of the time. And uh, it's not only silent retreats that's going to mature the mind, mature the paramis, you know, the paramis. What, the, what is the paramis? The paramis are the forces of purity in the mind. Generosity, loving kindness, understanding, truthfulness, uh, energy, resolve. Yeah, but all that I understand is all to the good, and it does prepare the mind for this. But don't you need to build up some concentration? Like, no. really? No. Yeah, I mean, no, 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 mistake, mistake. If you build up the paramis, if you if and and in your daily life, you always have every day you have ample opportunities to practice the paramis, patience, generosity, loving kindness, non-reactivity. You got to practice that every day. If you make it a conscious practice, you are preparing the soil of your mind for liberating insight. And and there are those among us who, you know, didn't get enlightened, didn't get their first stage on, on retreat. They they hit, household. They, yeah, they they hit stream entry, their first path experience, whatever lingo you want to use, not on retreat. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. this could happen in my bedroom. All depends on what you're doing. Right. <laughs> I didn't mean that in a boudoir <laughs> type of way, but okay. I meditate in my no, bedroom. Right. So this no. could happen yeah. in my yeah. bedroom. Sure. Yes. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, I don't. I don't want to set a. I don't want to set. You know, if you inform yourself, read the book, study the book, whatever, uh, find out what's involved, practice the paramis, uh, you know, daily. Uh, do your daily practice. Do a retreat when you can. You're gradually, you know, if, if you haven't gotten uh, first stage yet, you will. Thanks, as always, to the producers of the show, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, and Dan Silver. You can hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris anytime you like. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and leave a review. Thank you for that, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest. 
and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.